We come now to the Word, and we're going to worship God no less, no more, as we study His truth. And your submissive hearts and ready ears are as much a part of this time as my uh, talking mouth. And so we are all a part of this. We are still collectively and corporately worshiping God as we study His Word and submit our lives to His Word together this morning. Matthew chapter 3, we have made our way through the first two chapters of Matthew, and it has been a speedy process. We spent some time in the genealogies being reminded of the proof of the messianic claim of Jesus because of his human lineage, his right to the throne of David, his right to the promises of Abraham. We've been reminded of his deity and his right to be called the Son of God and the promised one because of his virgin birth. We studied the Christmas account several weeks ago. And then last week we were studying chapter 2 and looking at the prophetic fulfillments that were found in Christ. We are to be recommitted to the messianic promises of Christ because of the prophecy that was fulfilled in His coming. It should in no way endanger our belief and our faith and our confidence when we come to chapters like chapter 2 which are difficult at times for us to understand, we should only bolster our confidence that God is in fact sent His Son as the promised one to fulfill prophecy of a Messiah. And we watched through His early life as God fulfilled prophecy after prophecy and type after type in the person of Christ. Now between verse 23 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 3, Some 30 years have transpired. Matthew is silent in speaking of the life of Christ before his ministry begins. Luke gives us some insight, but very little. And so this morning we come 30 years plus in the future of Jesus' life to the ministry of the forerunner of the Messiah. It's promised, and we'll study this this morning, that someone would come and declare that the Messiah was coming. There would be a forerunner. There would be a prophet who would speak boldly to the nation of Israel that their promised one was coming and that their response should be repentance. Their lives should be put in order and there should be a believing remnant that prepares for the Messiah's arrival. And that is where we find ourselves this morning and it's none other than the famous John the Baptist, the forerunner, of the Messiah. John was the son of Elizabeth. She was barren until John. And you remember that Mary went and visited her for three months during the first stages of her pregnancy. Through that first trimester, she was with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was bearing John the Baptist. And you'll remember as well from the account of Luke that when Mary entered the house of Elizabeth, you remember what happened? John translation is lost a little bit, leapt within her, is the King James that I remember. Uh, Something inside, John knew that the Messiah was present in the room and he responded. And Elizabeth says, the one that's in me has responded to your presence. Surely what you say is true. That was John the Baptist. And he spent his life and his ministry his very short ministry, declaring the coming of the Messiah. His life ended at the chopping block as his head was cut off for Herod and his wife demanded it. And you'll remember that Herod wondered if Jesus was in fact John the Baptist come back from the dead because his life had ended abruptly and his conscience was so offended at killing John unjustly. So that brings us to the first part of chapter 3. And we're going to read and study just through verse 12 this morning. Lord willing, if we make it that far. And uh, you can be more confident than I am that we'll get there as we'll try to make every effort to get through these verses this morning. But let's read them together in preparation of our study. Matthew chapter 3, and read along with me beginning in verse 1 if you have a copy of the scripture with you. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoke, 
who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight or smooth. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry or to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord this morning from Matthew chapter 3. We're going to examine this paragraph of Scripture and divide it up into three divisions for really just for clarity of our study this morning. So there are going to be three divisions of the ministry of John the Baptist, and I hope that outlines help you. You understand that these are not inspired. I don't get special revelation for these. God does not tell me things to use as outlines. These are just simply derived for us to have hooks to hang what we find in these sections so that we can have memory of what we found. And so we're going to split it up into three divisions. Verses 1 to 4, we'll see the revelation of John's ministry, the beginning and the details of it, the revelation. Verses 5 through 10, we'll see the rebuke of John's ministry, and that will be towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then we'll conclude our morning. We trust we'll conclude our morning with the reason for John's ministry in verses 11 and 12. So we have the revelation, the rebuke, and the reasons. Hopefully that will aid you in your study in the future when you come back to Matthew chapter 3. So, let's begin with the revelation of John's ministry. And let's begin with the very first three words of verse 1. In those days. In those days. The first thing that we see in the revelation of the ministry of John is the timing of John's ministry. Now, this is a difficult thing for us as a Bible student because we came to verse 1 right off of verse 23 of chapter 2. But it wasn't in the days of verse 23 that John came from the wilderness preaching. We know that because Jesus, in verse 23, at the end of chapter 2, Joseph takes his family and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and Jesus is probably three, maybe four years old. And yet in chapter 3, right after we find out that John is preaching and baptizing, Jesus will come and begin his earthly ministry. And he will only serve and minister on this earth for three years, which at the most liberal estimation would leave him on the cross at the age of eight. We know something of the life of Christ, if nothing else by pictures, that that timing does not fit into the description that we have here. And so what is it that Matthew is saying when he says, in those days? Well, really the word those and the specification of a time period by Matthew is saying that there was a specific period. There there was a specific time frame in which John the Baptist came. And Luke, this is the glory of having four different gospel accounts, sheds a little bit of light on that for us. Luke chapter 2 If you're cross-referencing in your study of God's Word, and you should be, not to the distraction of what's there, but to aid in your understanding. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, all the way down through verse 52, gives us the history and the timing in which John the Baptist came. It tells us a little bit about the life of Christ. It tells us about his increase in wisdom and stature in verse 52, and in favor 
with God and man. Now verse 1 of chapter 3 begins to explain to us when those days were. It was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. We know him. He lives in infamy. And Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iternia. And Trachonitis. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the wilderness. Luke is very specific in the beginning of chapter 3 that he has now bridged a gap between the end of the early life of Christ, where Christ was growing in wisdom and stature. He was actually growing. He was a strapping young lad, growing, eating his meat and potatoes, and the time of John the Baptist. And he specifies it by four political people that are historical characters in the history of the nation of Israel and by the high priests who were ruling, Annas being the one who was retiring and ending his ministry, Caiaphas by the one who would take over, and he leaves us with a specific time frame that is in fact 30 years after the early life and the birth of Christ. And so in those days, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3, all that was to say that there is a specific time frame, but it is not attached in context to verse 23. Rather, Matthew is just pointing out that there was a specific time when John came. And that's an interesting word that is used because John just appeared out of the wilderness. We don't know what John was doing before this. If we don't know a lot about Jesus' early life, we know nothing about the early life of John the Baptist. For all that we have, he was in the wilderness. And when we think of wilderness... Uh, Maybe your scripture is translated desert. This is not the Sahara Desert. This is wilderness barren country where fruit could not be grown, where crops could not survive. This was wilderness, like I think of Canyon Country or Santa Clarita in Los Angeles. I'm sure that there's somewhere here that is wilderness as well that I just haven't experienced yet. John was there. We don't know what he was doing. But he comes, he appears at this time for one specific reason. His whole life calling was for this moment. He comes out of the wilderness and the timing of John's ministry is wrapped up completely in the time of Christ's life. Just a little side note, Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, will never again be seen in Matthew Many believe that he died when Jesus was a boy and that Jesus lived his early life providing for his family. We don't know anything about Joseph and we don't see him ever again after taking his family to Nazareth. We see Mary. She re-enters the life of Christ on several occasions in the Gospel account. And many of them you know will address those when we get to them. But Joseph is gone. Thirty years are gone. And this one, John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is here preaching. Now, I love the opportunity to talk about preaching. That's what John was doing. That's what he was all about. In verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let me take just a moment to explain to you a little bit about preaching that I hope will reinforce your commitment to biblical preaching. Because my life depends on it, right? So if if you lose your desire for biblical preaching, we're in trouble. Preaching, by definition, is proclamation and heralding. And we have completely lost the word picture of a herald in our culture. We don't have heralds. We don't have a king in our culture. But think back with me to a kingly culture, to a monarch culture, where a village would have a herald ride into their village Trumpets blasting, he had a message from the monarch, from the king. And he would preach the message. He would herald, he would proclaim the word of the king. It is that exact same concept that we find in all preaching that we find biblically. And John's preaching was no different. It was a proclamation of an event to come. 
or of something that had happened in the past. Either a law had been passed, a decree had been made, or something was about to happen in the future. They were going to go to battle. Whatever the case may be, this herald would come with a message from the king. Leon Morris, a commentator, very useful commentator, explains it this way. When a herald came to a region, people were not curious about his clothing or his creativity and speech or his techniques. They wanted to know what happened or what was about to happen in the kingdom. They wanted to know what the king had to say. The herald was just the mouthpiece. He was just a channel for information. Preaching today has fallen under different definitions, redefining, and I believe it all is based really on what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4. These are the final words of the Apostle Paul before he dies. We have recorded 2 Timothy chapter 4, common passage for many of you. I charge you in the presence of God, Paul charges Timothy, and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, why is that fallen on hard times? Why is now the preaching of the Word a unique event? Why is it that we have already been asked as a ministry if this is something new that we have come up with? This is a new technique. Verse 3. For the time is coming. Here's the reason why it's important to preach the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Preaching has been redefined. It has come under a variety of headings because 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 is being lived out in our present culture. Preaching has not changed in its essence from the ministry of John the Baptist to today. My job as a teacher and a communicator, as a pastor and preacher, is no different than the the essence of the job given to John. I am to proclaim the message of the King. You should come each week expecting to hear what the King has to say to you his servants. Clarity, then, becomes the highest priority for preaching. Clarity, so that we know clearly what God demands of us. And because the Bible is inspired as the Word of God, the Word of the King, we are concerned only with that inspired message. Preaching is not creativity. Preaching is not powerful stories. Preaching is not subject matters that are relevant. It is the proclamation and the heralding of the inspired, perfect message of the King of Kings. And John, according to his calling as a prophet, we are in between really Old Testament and New Testament theology. Paul, or John rather, comes as the final prophet to bear the news of the Messiah's arrival, and he is preaching the message given to him. Now, he's doing that in the wilderness. We've spoken of that just a little bit in the wilderness of Judea. In the outskirts of the city, he is not involved with the hubbub of normal life. and We're going to find that out in other characteristics of his ministry. But John is, is out where people generally do not go unless they had a good reason to go there. He's not concerned with being in the popular mass. He is concerned with declaring a message from the king to a people who have ears to hear and who have a heart to understand. We come then to his message, and wouldn't you love it if this is what sermons were all about? Verse 2, here's the message, here's the preaching, here's the proclamation of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you for coming this morning. That's the conclusion. He has one message. His one declaration from the king. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So this is the revelation of John's ministry. He comes at a specific time. He comes with a specific purpose, which is to preach. He's in a specific place. And he has a very vital and specific point to get across. His point is repentance. Repent. Now, our job as Bible students is not to make the Bible relevant to today. It's to help our minds get back to the Bible and its time so that we then can apply it to our current lives. So our job is not to make the Bible mold around our present culture, but to understand what was going on then so that we can rightly apply it today. So you need to understand this morning, and I need to understand as a Bible student this morning, that when John said repent to Jewish people because the kingdom is at hand, he was saying something that was so very offensive to the very nature of their people group. You see, the baptism in the Jewish culture that was most commonly known was the baptism of a Gentile who was becoming a Jew. And to do so, a Gentile had to repent. He had to turn from his Gentile ways, embrace the Jewish way of life, and he would be baptized into the Jewish culture. John, the second Elijah, the prophet who was promised as the forerunner of the Messiah, comes and he tells the very nation of Israel to repent. He tells Jewish people to repent and prepare for the Messiah. Say, well, what is the word repent? We use that a lot, and we'll see that a lot in Scripture. In its basic understanding, in the Greek word for repentance, all that is meant in the basic understanding of the word is a change of mind. It is a change of direction. There's no ethical demand just in the word itself, repent. It is a switching of thinking. It is a changing of the mind. And yet, when we come to the Bible and the Bible's use of the word repentance, we find nothing short of an absolute 180 degree turn from one path to another path. From the broad way to the narrow way. From my sin and my life to the purpose and goals and desire and will of Jesus Christ. And so John is demanding, he is preaching and proclaiming this warning. Repent. Turn from your ways and prepare for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is not remorse. It is not feeling bad for sin. It is sorrow for sin that leads to change in our ethical behavior and in our life direction. Sometimes we ask, we have a brother or sister in Christ who is found in sin and our heart breaks for them. We may confront that sin and the question of our minds is, were they repentant for their sin? It's difficult for us to assess repentance because repentance doesn't happen in a moment. It is a response that then has an ongoing effect on the rest of life. Repentance is a turning away and a movement towards something the opposite of where we were heading. So repentance is not just remorse. It is not just the pain and the guilt of sin. It is the pain and the guilt and the remorse for sin that drives us away from our sin and towards the way of our Savior. So understand that when you come to repentance in the New Testament, it is not just, a, it's not just an intellectual shift. It's not just a, I've been thinking this way, I guess I'm going to start thinking this way. It is my life has been going that way, and I'm going to turn and I'm going to go this way towards my Savior. This is massive. And for John to come to the Jewish nation and to tell them that they needed to repent was to strike them in the face of their arrogance and their pride as God's people, as the ones who had His covenants and His promises. And yet John says, you must turn and prepare for the kingdom. Jesus preached repentance. In fact, the very first sermon we have recorded out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 is repent. Repent. The twelve disciples preach repentance. Mark 6, 
Peter preached repentance at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Repentance, repentance, repentance. It's a turning from sin, a turning to Christ. It has a negative and a positive effect. This is the point of John's preaching. This is the message that he is heralding to the nation of Israel. There's a very clear reason why he's telling them they need to repent. It's because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Say, what does that mean? In fact, I was talking with my wife this morning about this, and this passage has just been one that both of us have been confused about for the most part of our lives. What exactly is going on here? We have to go back to an Old Testament perspective when we read this paragraph. John has come. Jesus is alive, but he has not, he has not publicly started his earthly ministry. So we are pre-ministry of Christ. We are certainly pre-death of Christ. Salvation is yet to come. The Messiah is yet to pay the sacrifice for sin. And John says, the kingdom of heaven, it's here. It's here. It's imminent. It's right here. It's at hand. It's close. Therefore, Israel, you need to get ready. Kingdom of heaven is no different, really, in essence, than the kingdom of God. In fact, many believe, and I would agree with them, that Matthew uses kingdom of heaven to keep from using the word God. Because the Jewish people, Matthew was particularly driving this gospel account home to, would have been offended at the use of God's name, Yahweh. You understand, I hope, maybe not, that Jehovah is the German transliteration of Yahweh, and Yahweh is the, is the consonant only name given to God so that the actual spoken name of God was never recorded and written down by a Jewish person in fear of taking it in vain. So they would not speak his name, they would not write his name, all for the fear of taking his name in vain. And so Matthew, in serving them, uses the word heaven as a representation of God. It's the place where God dwells. In fact, we still do this. Heaven really shined on me today, or heaven smiled on me today, right? That's us, in our culture, not using God's name, but intending for people to understand that we're talking about God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What has been in heaven is now coming to earth. God is about to establish his promise for a Messiah, for a king of the Jews. And this safeguard in the name and the title shouldn't distract us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, just move forward just a few pages in your Bible, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, And verse 24, much later in this gospel account, you'll see this. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Because it would be difficult to humble themselves and see their need. Verse 24, again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So interchangeably used, these are the same concepts you will read in other Gospels. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven more than any other writer in the New Testament. This is certainly a theme of our study, and we will examine it in great detail as the weeks go by in the book of Matthew. There is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is here. Christ has come. He has established His people And yet there is still a future aspect. The kingdom will come, right? The ultimate fulfillment will come. He has come in part. He has come and paid the price. He has established a spiritual kingdom in his people. It is at hand. And yet it is still future. So it is already here in some sense. And it is yet to come in some sense. This was the point of John's preaching. Now, there's a prophetic backbone to the ministry of John, and all of the Gospels give credence to this particular passage as the prophetic fulfillment and the revelation of John's ministry, and that's what we find in verse 3. 
For this is he, John, is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So John was the direct fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. He was the fulfillment of the one who would come and prepare the nation for the Messiah's arrival. I think of it this way. Sometimes we have to illustrate and think outside of our own understanding when we come to these passages. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. What is, what is he talking about? We lived in Dallas, Fort Worth for a year. And during that year, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, made a bid to get the Super Bowl to come to Dallas in their new stadium in Arlington. And he won. He got it. He got the Super Bowl to come to Dallas. But the prerequisite for the Super Bowl coming to Dallas is that Dallas has to spend multiplied millions of dollars preparing the city for the arrival of the Super Bowl. Freeways have to be mended. Bridges have to be built. Parking has to be established. Whole businesses will have to change their entire front of their business just for the Super Bowl to come to Dallas. The prophet spoke of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way, the road of the Lord. In other words, the king is coming. Make sure that the greater is out and that everything has been done and prepared for the king to come. Make his paths straight or make them smooth. Make his way simple and easy for him to travel on. And of course we understand that John's preaching and John's ministry was not a physical road that he was preparing. It wasn't that Jesus was coming, so let's get the greater out. It was repent, put your heart in order, and establish your path as the way of the king, because when he comes, he'll be looking for those who are his. This is the ministry of John. Now there's one final aspect in the revelation of John's ministry, and that is the character of John himself. And this is probably the most fascinating part, and it's probably the part we know most about John. And that is, he wore camel hair as his uniform, and he ate locusts I mean that, and wild honey. Those things are probably what we know most, other than that he was called the Baptist and that he was beheaded. But I think even those details in verse 4 speak to the character of this one, John the Baptist. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, rawhide belt around his waist and his food was locust and honey and wild honey say what does that have to do with this paragraph why is that included well camel's hair was not unknown to the day but it certainly was not the armani of the day this guy was not decked out in polo he was not running with the hip crowd in jerusalem and in judea he really didn't care what the newest and youngest kids were wearing. He never even changed his outfit. In fact, we have every reason to believe he's been wearing this camel outfit for his whole life out there in the wilderness. So here he has his camel garment, which would have been some kind of makeshift covering out of a camel's hair, which I have a hard time even grasping a visual picture of that, with a rawhide belt on, and he is in the simplest, most unbecoming form that you could be. He is practical in every way. He is functional. John is not distracted. He's got one purpose. And to survive, to accomplish his purpose, camel's hair did the trick. So he wears camel garment and he eats food that could be gained at the local market or could be found in the wild. People ate locusts. Um, People still eat locusts. I know that's hard to believe. Uh, that's hard for me to believe. I have no curious bone in my body. I don't really have any of that weird desire that some of you have to taste things. My daughter, yesterday we were shopping, and she reaches now for everything that she comes to at five months. So I decided to let her. We were in Gap, and I let her actually grab the sweatshirt that she was reaching for just to see what would happen. And she instinctively did what? Stuck it right in her mouth. I have none of that left. I grew out of that. I have no desire to pick up a locust and to stick it in my mouth. But some people eat these things for nutritional value. The point is, John could have lived in the city 
at the lowest level. He could have bought locusts, and he could have got honey, and it would have been very cheap. Or he could live in the wilderness on the exact same diet. The guy was at his core about one thing, and that was preaching repentance and the coming of the Messiah. That was the character of John the Baptist. Singular focus, singular goal. That's the revelation of this one called John. Now, let's move forward in our paragraph. I know you're eager to do so. Verses 5 to 10 will put the second break point as the rebuke of John's ministry. Here is a stinging rebuke from the prophet John the Baptist. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So they're out in the wilderness of Judea, and everybody is coming out. People are coming from every nook and cranny and responding to the desperate preaching of John to repent and prepare. This was the, the, the foundation, the formation of a remnant of Jewish people who were prepared for the Messiah's coming. Some of them would turn against the Messiah and would actually scream for his crucifixion. Some, no doubt, were saved at Pentecost as they were converted. Many of, many of these folks who were a part of the remnant would have been Old Testament Christians who would have seen in the transition period the coming of the Messiah, the death, and actually lived to see Pentecost. This is a very transitional period in Bible history. Some were coming in saving faith, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, which was only days away and only three years away from the ultimate sacrifice and his resurrection. Some were coming, certainly because of the testimony of Scripture, with some outward belief, but no internal true repentance. But they were coming from everywhere. There were people from all the region they were identifying themselves with the repentant and expectant remnant group of Jews. They were confessing their sins to Yahweh God and being brought back into the blessings of the covenant that were theirs. And now, verse 7 happens, and John speaks harshly to some of these folks who have come to be baptized. But when he saw many, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is not seeker-sensitive preaching and teaching. Um, I don't know how to explain it to you other than to say this is some of the harshest language that we find in our New Testaments. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming. We know these folks. These are like old friends as enemies of Christ, right? We see them. We recognize them. The Pharisees were the legalists of their day. They were the religious hierarchy. They had law upon law upon law to keep you from ever breaking the law. They had four, five, six fences built out so that you wouldn't even get close to the hole that was sinning. That was the Pharisee. No one could keep the laws of the Pharisee. No one could maintain that kind of rigorous legalism. And so they became a very private and higher sect of people. They became very proud, very arrogant, that they were the holy ones who, who did keep the law of God in purity. Sadducees are on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. They're as liberal as the day is long. They are as loose as can be within the Jewish religious system. And yet they are unified. They are unified in this passage and they are unified throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. They are unified because their life is built on their pride and their self-righteousness and their arrogance in who they were by birth and who they were within their culture, within their society as religious leaders. Here they come. They show up to the repentant baptism of the masses. And John, to use understatement, is not happy to see them. 
he's not happy to see them, and he uses some powerful language that we don't really use in our culture. I mean, when was the last time you called someone a children of a snake? Um, that's not really, I mean, they may look at you funny, like, why did you call me the child of a snake? Certainly had something to do in this culture with offensive and very derogatory language. John calls them children of snakes, poisonous snakes, fruitless trees, illegitimate children of Abraham, and he calls them and identifies them as burn pile trees that would just be burned and discarded. Look at what he says. You brood of vipers, that is, you family of snakes. Then he asks this question, who was it that warned you to flee from the wrath? Who was it that gave you the word that you should flee from the wrath? The wrath is coming to you, but I want to know who warned you, because whoever warned you did not give you the full picture. Verse 8 is the big picture of what John has to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the self-righteous religious people of Jerusalem and of the Jewish nation. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's enemies are those who were self-righteous, who thought they could earn or put on an external show that would somehow grant them the promises and the covenant and the relationship with the Messiah and with God. He was offended at the self-righteous and external view of repentance, that it was an act to be done, and that doing the act of repentance, which was baptism in this case, would somehow prove that they were as righteous as they thought they were. And John sends this message home, bear fruit, bear fruit. John's message is coming and doing this activity in no way proves that you are repentant. This is a first start to a life of repentant fruit being born out in you. And he knew all too well that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lifestyle and a worldview that would never bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9 says, Do not presume, almost to catch their argument before they could say it, Pharisees hear them. They look at each other. They look at the Sadducees who are their friends for a day. Hey, we are the children of Abraham. Why is this, who is this guy and why is he telling us that we have need for repentance and for baptism? We have Abraham as our father. Don't presume to say it. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God doesn't need you, Pharisee. And God doesn't need you, Sadducee to fulfill his promises and to be faithful to his covenant. John is furious at the self-righteousness that is brought to those who were truly repentant and coming for baptism in the presence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John's message is clear to them. If they will not repent and bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance, their end is eternal punishment. Look at verse 10. Even now... This is unbelievable imagery. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God cares about fruit. Fruit is the external expression of the internal reality of conversion. It does not generate conversion. It does not produce salvation fruit-bearing, fruits of the Spirit seen in your life, give proof to what has been accomplished in you. Don't misunderstand. John's point was not if you work harder, if you bear better fruit, the axe will be pulled away from the tree. His point was your heart is corrupt, therefore you will never bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. So you self-righteous man-made religious leaders, you need to humble yourselves so that you may bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then and only then will that fruit be such that the axe will be removed from the root of the tree. It's as if the wood is about to be hacked into. The wedge is about to be driven into this tree because it bears no fruit. You may look like a fruit tree. You may walk around like you're the best fruit tree on the planet. 
But if you're not bearing fruit, the end is eternal fire. The picture is powerful. Extremely sobering. So these are the enemies of John's ministry, and he gives them this very harsh rebuke. Humble yourselves and bear fruit. Because the keeper of this vineyard, the keeper of this field, this fruit tree, this set of acres is about to hack down every single tree that doesn't bear fruit. And he's going to throw them into the fire. Verse 11 begins the third phase of John's ministry or the third facet of John's ministry this morning, the reason for John's ministry. We've seen the revelation, the details, the rebuke of his preaching to these self-righteous religious leaders who had no hearts of repentance. And now we see the reason for John's ministry in verse 11 and 12. I, John says, baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry or to loose, to take off and deal with for him. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will not clear, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Here's the reason for John's ministry. John's ministry was first and foremost a ministry for repentance. It was for preparation. He was baptizing people to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Here's a question that I asked my wife this morning, <clears throat> and I ask you as well. What application does John's baptism have to the church today? Because we, we all, at some level, have an understanding of baptism for believers today. There's baptism in the church today. The question that I've always had is, how does John's baptism fit into our understanding of today you may need to be baptized as you come to faith in Christ. Does your baptism as a Christian have anything to do with what we find in Matthew chapter 3? It does in a sense, but not probably as much as you think. Baptism, all baptism in the New Testament, is an identification to a group. It's an outward identification to a group of people. So if John's baptism is an identification with a group. Which group is it? It's Jewish people who were coming to be identified with the repentant remnant, smaller Jewish group, that were actually looking for the Messiah. Jesus, next week, will come and be baptized to identify Himself, not for the confession of sin, not for forgiveness of sin, but to identify Himself with that remnant group who were looking for the Messiah. That was the people group that he would want to associate with. And we, as New Testament Christians, beginning in Acts, we are baptized to identify ourselves with the body of Christ. So John was not baptizing people into the church. The church does not exist in Matthew chapter 3. It's not here. Jerusalem is not, or the Jewish people are not the church. Israel is not the church. He's baptizing them as an identification method to a specific remnant of the people of Israel. That was John's ministry. It was a baptism with water for repentance. And he contrasts it to the ministry of Jesus. And he says, but he was coming after me. And John here puts himself directly under the Messiah's authority, is mightier than I am. His baptism is totally different than mine, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. There could be no more humiliating job than to take off and remove someone's filthy sandal from their filthy foot and deal with their shoes. John says, I wouldn't be worthy to do that for Jesus. I baptize you with water. I I put you under, I, I dunk you, if we use that word, I immerse you. I was explaining to some this week that the word baptized is not translated. That's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo means to put under, to dunk, to immerse, to put through. 
it's used outside of water or the Christian church in various accounts of even fire and other things where someone is engulfed. They are baptizo. And the early translators of the Bible into different languages, Latin and English, decided that they would not take place in the argument, so they transliterated instead of translating. So, John says, I baptizo, I immerse you in water for repentance, but Jesus is going to immerse you in something totally different. And that's what we come to in the second part of verse 11. He, that being Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will be brought under and surrounded and engulfed in the Holy Spirit. This is the priority of John's ministry. It was Jesus who he was foretelling. It was Jesus who he was preparing the way for. And Jesus would baptize spiritually and permanently through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this would have been an amazing encouragement to the Jewish people because Joel 2.28 was a promise that they held to that the Holy Spirit would come and that God would pour Him out when the new covenant was made with Israel. Say, what is fire? Why does Matthew record John's words as saying, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? Some have said that fire is another expression for the Holy Spirit, like in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit came as a flame of fire. It wasn't fire. The men were not on fire at Pentecost. I don't know if that's been a misconception, but it hasn't been in my life. But they were not on fire. The Spirit came as tongues of fire. They could not figure out how to describe it. We don't even know what that means. But the Spirit came in such a way that it looked like a flame of fire was coming down from heaven. So some have tied it to the Spirit. Some, and I think in a better understanding, have seen fire throughout the context and will continue to see it in the context as judgment, as God's judgment. In fact, both references to fire in the verses we've just studied have been about hell, eternal fire. So here is the message of John in the final reason for his ministry. He's here to baptize with repentance, but he is here only in contrast to the one who is to come. And the one who is to come is not going to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And you will either be baptized by Jesus Christ in the Spirit at the point of conversion, or you will be baptized with fire at the point of judgment. You have two options. There will be one who will receive baptism from Christ in the Holy Spirit. And I trust that's you this morning as God's child. The Spirit gave you life. The Spirit empowers you and gives you gifts for the use in the church. The Spirit lives within you, is your comforter until Christ returns. Or... The other side of the coin would be those who are baptized by Christ in fire in His holy and perfect judgment on their sin, their unrepentant sin. say, well, how can we understand that? Well, verse 12 is the illustration of that very principle. Verse 12, Jesus' winnowing fork, the Messiah's winnowing fork is in His hand and He will clear His threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John here says that Jesus has come, and in his coming, he's got his threshing instruments together. His farming tools are here, and the picture is obvious. He'll thresh the floor. The wheat would be brought in. It's attached to the chaff, and it would be winnowed. It would be thrown up in the air. And the chaff would blow away, and the wheat being more dense would fall to the ground. And over and over again they would do it until what was valuable and what was true and what was fruit for their labor would fall to the floor, and the chaff would be piled in the side. They would take it and they would burn it. The picture is not only painfully obvious, it's the most sobering picture. Because in the coming of the Messiah, all of humanity... Jew and Gentile alike were divided into two categories. Wheat or chaff. 
And with the coming of the kingdom, with Messiah's arrival, the threshing floor is being cleared. And John's message to the Jewish nation was, he is examining who is truly his. And he'll put you in the barn. You'll be kept. You'll be brought into his presence. Those who are not his will not just be burned, will not be sent to destruction, but with unquenchable fire. This is the reason for John's ministry. It was the imminent coming of Jesus and his earthly work. And it was the desperate situation that faced people then and still faces people today that the floor is being divided between wheat and chaff. There are only two categories of people on the planet. There are those who repent and who give their lives and their allegiance to Jesus Christ, and there are those who do not. And they may come as religious packages. They may come as non-religious packages, as filthy and wicked as they can be, but if they are not repentant and have not embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah, they're under the judgment of God. It's like Matthew is just beating the same drum over and over again from different angles. The same truth. The same truth. Accept him. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Embrace him as the Messiah, as the King, as the ruler. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or you will face eternal fire, unquenchable fire. So that's John the Baptist. That's the revelation of his ministry. His rebuke is strong, and his reason for ministry and his reason for existence was to proclaim the coming of Jesus Christ. Next week, Jesus will actually come to John, and we'll examine John's response and the words of our Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, the first words recorded of our Lord in the Gospel account given by Matthew. This is exciting for me because I have waited and looked forward to letting our Lord Jesus Christ teach us. That's why we began the book of Matthew here at Grace Church at the very beginning, was to allow the Lord of the church to actually instruct us with his words. Have we prepared our hearts? Have we given our lives to this one who was the promised one? We don't stand on the, on the front end waiting for His coming. We don't stand in need of preparation of our hearts for the coming of Jesus in His earthly ministry. We are on the other side of the cross. We are on the other side of the book of Matthew. We are looking back. We know the end of the story. And the demand has not changed. Will we repent and believe? And those of us who have repented and have believed, will we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Will we express and live the lordship of our King? This is the challenge for us from Matthew chapter 3. It's not an object lesson in baptism. It's not a moral lesson in the character of John as a prophet. But it is a clear call that in fact Jesus was again exactly who he said he was. And he demands our all. This passage points out more than the others to this point that our Lord is not just a king. He's not just a savior. He's not just the one promised, but he is a judge. And he is a judge that makes no mistakes. He knows the heart of men. He is not impressed by the external. He's impressed by the fruit that is born in keeping with repentance. And that fruit is always the result of His grace that He's granted. So allow the Lord to examine your heart this morning. Allow your heart to be laid open as being in one of two categories. If you find yourself as chaff, will you repent today? Will you turn from your sin and follow after Christ, giving your life to Him in faith? acknowledging that His sacrifice on the cross, His ministry that He came to accomplish, 
is the substitutionary death for your sin. If you'll believe that He rose from the dead and gave victory through life, that you might live eternally. And if you will follow Him as the promised Messiah, you are promised God's grace and forgiveness. If you resist, you are promised the unquenchable fire for those who will only know the wrath of the Messiah. This is the one who John prophesied. This is the one that John prepared the way for. And it's the one that we worship and glory in this morning.